Hey everybody, this is the Nevin of the Nevin and Fred podcast with a special announcement. As you may or may not know, the ERISA 403B market is probably the most diverse and dynamic in the retirement space. Ranges everything from education K-12 to mammoth university retirement systems, from small nonprofits to huge hospital systems, everything in between. It's so special, in fact, that we are bringing the Nevin and Fred podcast live to Washington, D.C., just in time for the second annual ERISA 403B conference. We're going to be talking about the key Secure 2.0 provisions and timeline for 403B plans, litigation trends that should influence plan design and committee focus, prospects for future legislation such as expanding CIT access to 403B plans, and ultimately how all of this, how plan sponsors and advisors should respond and prepare. Look, it's all taking place October 1st through the 3rd, and there's a special code that will give you a $100 discount on registration. Just go to erisa403badvisorconference.org and use the promo code ERISANEVIN. Yeah, I know. Original, huh? Thanks for tuning in. Um, I hope to see many of you at the ERISA 403B conference for the live Nevin and Fred podcast. Hope everybody has a great day. Thanks again for all your support. Well, hey, hey, everybody, welcome back. Um, And hopefully you've just finished listening to our update, which ended up being as long as a regular podcast, because there's so much going on out there. But just in case you've forgotten, or maybe you've taken a break in between listening to the last one and listening to this one, I'll just tell you again that I'm Devin Adams, uh, now retired Chief Content Officer of the American Retirement Association, the Nevin and Nevin and Fred. And of course, joined with my, uh, joined with me is my podcasting partner, uh, proficiency uh, is Mr. Fred Reich. Hey, Fred. Hey, Nevin. How you doing? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. Well, look, one of the topics that we had had sort of bandied around to, to give some thought to, it's something that, that keeps coming up. It's not a brand new idea, but it's one of those like it's been out there for a long time idea, but it really probably hasn't gotten the attention or the traction that it might get or that it deserves given some of its uh, contributions, literally contributions to um, people's retirement, security, savings, whatever. And that's the concept of what's called re-enrollment. Okay. Now, re-enrollment is, is, is an interesting concept. Um, and it is, it is a step along the continuum, if you will, from automatic enrollment. And we'll so just back up and remember back in the good old days, we made everybody sign up to be a part of the 401k plan, what we now call voluntary enrollment, um, which is, you know, you have to fill out a form. You have to tell us how much you want to take out of your paycheck. You want to tell us, you know, how much money you're going to, you know, how you want that money invested, et cetera. Usually after some period of time after you've been working there, sometimes it was as much as a year, but increasingly people can, can participate in these plans like right away. Um, but that was voluntary enrollment. It was kind of like the standard. It was the way it was, you know, it seems like forever. Um, But somewhere in the early 80s, we began to have what we now call automatic enrollment. But at the time, awfully enough, was called negative election, (laughs) which which didn't really have a great marketing sizzle to it. 
but the idea basically was we we weren't going to make people have to fill out a form in order to be to automatically participate in the plan. In other words, when we know you're eligible to participate, and we're going to uh, automatically set you up to have money taken out of your paycheck in automatic enrollment. Um, and it kind of trundled along that way. Then we had the Pension Protection Act of 2006, which gave us some structure and provided some protections against things like wage garnishment concerns and all that. And it really kind of took the concept of automatic enrollment into high gear, um, which, again, was working with a standard. Like, you know, the baseline here is we're going to automatically enroll you, take 3% of your pay. Um, we're going to automate. We're going to take that investment, we're going to put it in a qualified default investment alternative, which was frequently a target date fund or a balance fund or something like that. Um, and there you go. The idea, though, was if we're going to automatically enroll people, we're going to give people the option to say, no, I don't want that. Um, and that was, you know, that's been kind of a concern. A lot of plan sponsors who were hesitant to go with automatic enrollment did it because they didn't want to um, be too paternalistic. Right, Fred? That was before we had the mom factor. Um, so they didn't want to do uh, do it to people. They were like, they're adults. They can, if they want to be in, they can be in, that kind of stuff. Um, and we've, we've kind of moved away from that because what we've, what we've learned is that people who want to fill out the form and all, they, they still can. Automatic enrollment doesn't take anything away. What it does is it takes people who are maybe hesitant to, uh, to do that for whatever reason, or maybe they can't afford it. Um, you know, it, it, it sort of takes that that burden off of them. So we're going on with automatic enrollment. The problem, of course, is uh, we are continuing to automatically enroll people who are new and join the plan. But that person who opted out five years ago, maybe they couldn't afford it at the time. We don't do anything with them. We just they just stay where they are. Uh, and and the and we'll talk some more about this later, but a lot of times it's kind of like, look, they opted out. I'm not going to insult their intelligence. I'm not going to, you know, be accused of not paying attention to their whatever. I'm just going to, um, we're just let sleeping dogs lie, right? Um, so uh, re-enrollment basically says, oh no, <laughs> let's give them another chance uh, because things can change and they can always opt out, right? So they opted out last year, but we'll come back next year. And when we're automatically enrolling everybody else, we'll automatically enroll them. And if they want to opt out, they still can, right? Um, so, in fact, uh, last year there was something introduced in Congress, in the Senate, um, called the Auto Enroll Act of 2022, which would have provided uh, plan sponsors some, some safe harbor coverage for automatically re-enrolling participants every three years, once every three years. Um, now that was last year, so it doesn't matter anymore. But but again, so it's uh, the notion is there's this concept of re-enrollment that's uh, kind of out there. And, uh, and yet people still seem to be largely hesitant to do it. Um, at least that's kind of my sense of the word. What do you think, Fred? Have I described it accurately? Have I forgotten something? Yeah, no, you did a good job. I, I just a whole bunch of thoughts, Nevin. One, you know, it was revolutionary that in December of 2023, 2022, we got in the SECURE Act 2.0, a provision that says new plans have to automatically enroll, period. They have to, no choice anymore. Um, I think the next step is somewhere in the next few years, we could get another law that says, and 
all plans have to automatically enroll too. And I think somewhere maybe after that, we could get the provision you just talked about. And plans have to re-enroll at least every three years. Uh, and I'm in, I, I know somebody's going to get upset at this, but I'm in favor of all of that. Uh, I, you know, this, this idea that we don't want to tell our employees what to do, I think, you know. We like but, to be provocative here. It's another key. <laughs> but our provocative way, podcast. <laughs> we, we just hired you and you got to sit in that office. You got to work <laughs> with that secretary. You got to get permission when you take your vacation. This is the only health plan we offer, but we don't want to tell you what to do. Oh, come on. <laughs> give me a break. That is so self-serving. Uh, I just, it's like. I don't tell, know. Us, tell us what you really think. Fred. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I get the people have made that argument. I know it's there. I've heard it myself, but I think it's an emotional argument, not a logical argument. My logic says put people where automatically put people where in the best, where they're in the best place to have success by and large. I think the best place to have success vis-a-vis -vis a retirement plan is in the plan rather than out of the plan. And then if they don't want to be in, let them elect out. You're not really telling anybody what to do. You're just saying, let's start off people in a good place. And if they've got an alternative plan or no plan, or they just want to go off and live in the forest, you know, in a pup tent when they're retired, let them do it. But don't start off everybody in the wrong place and make everybody move into the right place, uh, the right place for most people. So not... This may not come as a surprise to you, but I have an attitude. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so that's my attitude. Um, and I'm a great believer in, in automatic enrollment. I'm a great believer in default investments. I'm a great believer in re-enrolling. Um, you know, let's say I was in a plan that automatically enrolled last year. And I was 25 years old, just out of law school, trying to pay off student loans thinking about getting married, how the heck am I going to fund a honeymoon, you know, whatever. Or I'm trying to get kids. I just had a kid. I'm paying for all that. And I have, and my wife and right, I you've had, you've had a busy year. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I'd say like five years from now, a lot of that is behind me. It's under my belt. I've done it. I've been there, done that. My life was leveled off a little bit and the plan re-enrolls. I could very easily say, you know, I hadn't really thought about it, but this now makes a lot of sense to me. And so I, I, I view it as a nudge under a favorable nudge as opposed to sludge under behavioral finance. And I'm all in favor of it. So if, <laughs> if anybody's listening uh, and disagrees with me, Nevin, will you give them your email address? <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Now, look, one of the things I alluded to earlier this is something I've, I've heard from folks and it's like, and, and what, what they have, what they say they have heard is I, you know, I don't want to insult people's intelligence. They, they have told me they don't want to be a part of this. Let me interrupt for one second. That, that just to be tongue in cheek, what intelligence, they, you don't want to insult what intelligence. I think in this context, intelligence means that somebody has gathered the relevant information, they've thought about it carefully, and they've made a decision that's in their best interest that is both informed and reasonable. That's what I think intelligence means in that context. But 
I don't think the typical participant is that. The typical employee is that focused on that. I think they got so many other pressures in their life, financial and otherwise, that automatic enrollment is not insulting their intelligence. It's giving them a helpful hand. But as I said earlier, I have an attitude. We've made that in many cases. It's it's still some resistance to, again, smaller employers. But we seem to have, have crossed that Rubicon with regard to automatic enrollment. Yeah. I think I think the distinction that some people would make, just to have some fun with you here, is that, yeah, that that's right, but they obviously did make a conscious decision. They took the time to get the form to say, stop, I don't want this, for presumably legitimate reasons, like they can't afford it. Their spouse has a plan. They feel covered. There's already a defined benefit plan in existence, maybe even, and they don't need it. In other words, they did take the time, and it is time and energy, right, to stop the deductions. So why would you presume that just because a year has passed, they've changed their mind? Well, two thoughts on that. One, three years was as what... Well, three years of the legislation, but, yeah, but... That, that, I was thinking three years when I said that. But you know, giving you credit for such a persuasive argument, I'd be willing to move to four years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you you just think we have to let enough time pass so that they probably forgotten that they opted out? <laughs> yeah, so that's no longer an insult because they don't remember. Um, but no, I think. You know, the point being is you want to do it, I think, uh, often enough that you're taking into account that there could be change in circumstances in their lives, but not so often that you're like poking at them. Uh, And I was just, in my mind, three years was sort of hit that sweet spot, but maybe it's four years, maybe it's five. I'm not... I don't have a strong opinion about how often so much as actually, yes, do it. Just do it in a way that's right for your company, a way that's right for your employees. But don't say that not doing it is going to produce better results for people over the long haul, because I think doing it will produce better results. Okay, well, let me offer offer you a twist on this. Okay. So somebody's in the plan. Whether they've been opted, whether they've been automatically enrolled or not, they're in the plan. They've made some investment decisions. Now, you've gone through some care to select a qualified default investment alternative, something we've talked about on many of these podcasts. So, do you take that participant's investment directions and reset them into the the QDIA? I. I actually have some personal experience with a version of that. Um, we, when I had my law firm before I merged into a very big law firm, we were about 25 attorneys and maybe 55 people overall, including paralegals and staff. Um, we added target date funds and then we did a re-enrollment. We default, redefaulted everybody. Uh, and if they didn't put in an affirmative investment election, we defaulted them into the tar- age-appropriate target date fund. Um, that was very early, before people were more commonly doing this, and so it was considered, you know, venturesome. You you uh, were ahead of your time. We were just like 
with predicting those those BlackRock cases. Or, uh, <laughs> the um, but um, the day, at, at, but we really we were really careful. We gave like a sixty day notice, a thirty day notice, a seven day notice, because we didn't want to trip anybody up. That was never the objective. It was just that we assumed that we had employees who um, didn't really know much about investing and had just picked investments because somebody said it was a good one. Um, and I think the proof of the pudding of what we assumed was twofold. One, I got really, really busy like the week before the election, the, the, the default occurred, uh, and completely forgot about it. And so the default occurred and like four or five days later, I realized it already happened and nobody had complained. So <laughs> it worked at that level. Nobody came to me as the managing partner and said, you're awful. Um, the, other, the other way it worked was a substantial number of, of employees allowed themselves to be invested in the targeted funds, suggesting that they did not have a high degree of confidence in how they were previously invested. So... Certainly when there's a new option, some change to the plan, switching record keepers or other you know, providers, switching targeted funds, maybe. Um, I'm, I can see that being a genesis to a re-enrollment of the type that we went through. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I think you could do it at any point in time. The, you know, let's say an advisor picked up a new plan, new 401k plan, and they saw 40% of the employees were in the stable value fund. And they look at these, and these were like 30 years, 35-year-old employees. The advisor says, you know, something happened here. This isn't how you would normally expect it to be. I could see putting in a re-enrollment process at that point, partially to test, is that really what people want? Or did they somehow get misled? Maybe they enrolled, maybe they joined the plan right after a really bad period in the stock market and the performance of all the mutual funds looked awful. Uh, I don't know. I mean, who knows? How can, You can't really know what went on in people's minds. So you have to make a judgment call. Does this plan look appropriately invested? By and large, not just on average, but as you look through the demographics of the workforce, younger employees, middle, older, and so on, uh, or do we have some real glitches illogical investment patterns in this plan. If so, I would re-enroll. Yes, I would redefault everybody. I would have an education campaign. I would give multiple warnings, you know, communications. But yeah, I'd re-enroll. I, I have no problem with that. Well, it's interesting because I, I think, again, and, you know, I, I think, you know, I wrote a column this past week about, you know, there was a lot of reports out about how millennials are, they, you know, they, they don't know how to do anything. It was It was a bad week press-wise for millennials and millennials catch a lot of grief anyway. Um, but, but the notion in some hand is that because so many of that age demographic have in fact changed jobs and been defaulted into QDAs and such. I mean, you know, back in the good old days when you were picking your own investments, I mean, I, I spent a lot of time the day I filled out the form <laughs> to, to pick the right funds but then, you know, you've got a job, right? You've got things that don't have anything to do with that. And so trying to pick the right time, you know, keeping your portfolio 
rebalanced is is time consuming and it's it's something that a lot of people don't have the skill set for but most importantly even the people who have a skill set don't have the time so the nice thing about something like a, a target date fund or, or a balance fund anything like that is that you've got people who know what they're doing who are paid to know what the right thing is to do is kind of keeping an eye on your portfolio and and reapportioning it to take all of those variables into account and i think that's why um, there's a lot about how concerned millennials are because, like, you know, they, they've not seen this long stream of, you know, bull markets the way that the boomers have and stuff. They they come into the workplace right as we have the Great Recession and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So they're kind of like put off by it. But the great thing to me about these asset allocation tools is it sort of helps them get over that concern. Um, it, it takes action on their behalf because I think that you could logically expect them to be just kind of frozen in inertia. And I think one of the potential problems with not doing something like re-enrollment is that older workers who have had, who, who were in the plans before there was a target date fund, who therefore weren't defaulted in, and they're sitting there at the, at the tail end of their investment careers, at least as a working career, with their, with their old asset allocations. And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that however much time and attention people spend setting them up, they don't really, they're not really able to keep up with or don't keep up with those investments on an ongoing basis. So, yeah, I agree. I, I, I mean, I see two big problems. Uh, one is one you mentioned that you just don't have time to keep up. Time goes by. You know, you've got you're investing in a way that may have made sense for a 35 year old, but it doesn't for a 50 year old. Um, the, the other thing, I mean, the thing I suffered from is that, you know, went to college, went to law school, became a lawyer. So academic, 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 you know, I'm smart. I know what I'm doing. Well, it took about five years of practicing before I was able to. But this is a hypothetical, right? Or are no, we talking about no. you? We're talking real. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, so I started thinking, like, I think a lot of doctors and other professionals think, wow, I'm really good at this one thing. It means I know investing. Um, I, know, would, I, I would. I have to. I have to share a story. Okay. Back in the day when I was a record keeper, we never actually did this, but we used to joke about setting up uh, a shorting index. We would look at all of the self-directed brokerage accounts that were held by our doctor and lawyer clients and short against those moves. So, <laughs> if I had the money back, I would be in even better shape. But. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I mean, yeah, because I thought I was, I thought I could translate the lawyer smartness over to investing smartness, which you can't. I mean, if I, maybe if I worked on investing 60, 70 hours a week, like I work on lawyering, maybe I could accumulate some experience and some, and, and hone some skill, but, but no, I can't afford to do that. And so if you just, in other words, people make mistakes. They make mistakes by not paying attention. They make mistakes by paying too much attention. And so I think any help that we can give folks, any, you know, any, any, any guidance uh, that we can build into the system because, you know, you have to manage the costs. You can't individualize everything other than through technology. Anything we can build into the system to help produce better results for people, I think is a good deal. And I think default investing fits into that. I think automatic enrollment fits into that. I think automatic re-enrollment. I think I think automatic enrollment for all those old people that weren't automatically enrolled when you 
switched from regular or traditional enrollment to automatic enrollment, getting them into the plan, going back and capturing them now. I think all of that helps put people in the right position, but still allows them to say, no, I don't want to be there. And nobody wants to force, I mean, I mean, I don't know anybody who wants to force people to do something with their plan. But, and that's, uh, you know, there's the concept in behavioral finance of nudge and sludge. Like nudge is like putting them there, but saying you can elect out. You know, we think it'd be good for you, but you can elect out if you don't want to do it. Sludge is like when you call up to cancel a subscription and you're on hold for three days. Uh, <laughs> that's sludge. They're not saying we won't cancel it for you. They just make it so darn painful that you just keep on paying it. That's that's behavioral finance in a negative way. Uh, but I see this as nudge. I don't see it as sludge. And I, I just think it's a way to produce the best results for the least effort. That's all. I, I'm really into an efficiency in that regard. And I think that is the efficient approach. So so do we have a Siskel and Ebert moment here where we give a thumbs up? <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've said so much, most of it inconsistent. I think a thumbs up will be meaningful. So. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, re-enrollment, something you ought to check out. Um, we'll have resource uh Links and stuff you can check out. There's been a, a couple of interesting studies that have been done um, with regard to how well this works. And you might not be surprised to know that the studies actually suggest that it does work, that uh, that people do mostly stick with the re-enrollment. Um, so there you go. Um, Fred, again, great, great conversation. I'm going to mention everybody before we get off here. Um, we have just been booked for a live version of the Nevin and Fred podcast at the upcoming Napa slash NTSA ERISA 403B conference in Washington, D.C. It's uh, October 1st through the 3rd. We're going to close the whole thing out. Um, so it should be a lively discussion, and we hope to see many of you there uh, cheering us on and, uh, and basically just sort of basking in the glory of our conversation. <laughs> How's that sound? <laughs> it sounds even better than what we actually are. <laughs> All right. I hope everybody has a great rest of your week whenever you're listening to this. Fred has always been food. Thank you. Thanks, Noah. Yeah, good to talk.